Welcome to the OTs Gone Rogue podcast, where we share real stories about real OTs who are choosing to think outside the box and do things differently. I'm your host, Melissa Lapointe. Over the years, I've had the pleasure of connecting with the most remarkable therapists who are finding their way as thought leaders, change makers, and heart-led entrepreneurs. They've helped to inspire me to think big and dig deep in my own healing journey. And it's now time to bring these conversations to a bigger stage. Together, we're going to share stories about overcoming adversity, finding our people, and taking the road less traveled, even when it feels messy and uncomfortable. Okay, are you ready to join us? This is the OT's Gone Rogue podcast. Hey everyone, Melissa LaPointe here, and welcome to another episode of the OT's Gone Rogue podcast. On today's show, I'm joined by yet another trailblazer in the OT profession. Laura Rowan is an OT entrepreneur based on the East Coast of the United States, where she practices both in New York and Massachusetts. Her area of specialty is in pelvic floor rehab, and more recently, Laura's made the transition into teaching and program development as it relates to pelvic rehab, manual assessment, and treatment techniques. Pretty amazing stuff, right? Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk about this concept of being a trailblazer. What does this even mean? Well, some synonyms for trailblazer are pioneer, pathfinder, creator, frontrunner, experimenter, inventor. And when I think of trailblazers in the OT profession, I think of OTs who are doing things that have never been done before. There's no blueprint for this kind of work. And sure, it can sound exciting and mysterious and novel and new, but guess what else is involved in trailblazing? Doing things incorrectly, falling down, going down the wrong path, making poor investments, choosing blindly. It means a lot of course correction. It means a lot of falling down and getting back up again and doing this in front of people, meaning it's bloody hard work. It's ego bruising. And at times it can crush your spirit. But do you guys want to know a secret? When you're doing trailblazing work, surrounded by a supportive community of like-minded people who get you, who are cheering you on, who are there to lift you up when you fall down, it's not so bad. It can actually be quite fun. So think of it this way. Imagine standing on the edge of a cliff with the ocean below you. When you're there by yourself on that edge, you may be overthinking, you may be overanalyzing, wondering about all the things that can go wrong. Yeah, that's scary. But now imagine standing on the edge of that cliff with a group of your people. You have a coach that's done this a hundred times before, pointing out your blind spots, explaining how to position yourself, telling you the mantra that you want to repeat, showing you where to look, telling you how to land. Now imagine you're still with this group of people, your arms are all linked up, You're cheering one another on, you're laughing, you're shrieking, you're all ready to jump together. That doesn't sound quite so bad anymore, does it? And that, my friends, is what a group program can do for you. Whether it is a coaching program, a mentorship program, a membership community, because here's the thing, you don't know what you don't know. You can't see your own blind spots. And you sure as heck can't teach yourself something that you've never done before. You don't have to do this alone. Actually, you shouldn't be doing this on your own. So when you hear me interview trailblazers and visionaries, I want you to know that the majority of them are in a group program. They're working one-on-one with somebody. They're blazing their own trail, yes, but they're getting support along the way. And many of them are now offering their own coaching and mentoring programs. Take me and Laura, for example. At the time of this recording, I just invested in another 12-month coaching program for coaches and course creators. 
Laura's also invested in a pretty amazing business coaching program, if I do say so myself, meaning we're both getting support on this journey. And I think it's so important to talk about that. So if you're really looking to make a difference this year, please, whether it's a membership community, a clinical mentorship program, or a business coaching intensive, don't do it alone, you guys. Find your people. It really does make the world of difference. All right, I'm going to get off my soapbox now and let's get back to the interview. So please join me and my special guest, the one and only Laura Rowan. Welcome, Laura, to the podcast. I'm so happy that you're here with me today. This is exciting. Oh, yes. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here with you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So I can't wait to dive into all the good stuff. As I was prepping for this interview, I really resonated with many parts of your story and what you've been up to. So we have lots to talk about, but before we get into it, can we start just by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, So my name is Laura Rowan. I grew up in upstate New York and um, went to Utica College of Syracuse University for occupational therapy school. And then I moved out to the Boston area where my boyfriend at the time, husband now, was from. And um, that's where I kind of, you know, spent 20, 21 years being an OT um, and then discovered my path as a pelvic health therapist. And now we've, the past couple of years, have since moved back to my hometown, Chatham, New York. Cool. And I'm going to back up right away. So... Laura, how did you discover your path? What was the instigating factor? Because when you discovered pelvic health, I know for a fact there were not a lot of OTs practicing in pelvic health. So how did you even discover that this is something that you could do? Um, Well, so I had quickly, I think I was always kind of looking for like my path as an OT, like looking, how was I going to stimulate myself? How was I going to advance? And so quickly I found myself, I was working in SNFs um, with geriatric population and I found myself in a team lead role right away and then, you know, moved into a coordinator and manager position. And as I was, you know, working with at those clinics, um, we were, you know, using e-stim and ultrasound and diathermy, and we had this company that supported those those programs. And one of their protocols for the e-stim was a urinary incontinence program. And so nobody really wanted to start picking up urinary incontinence patients. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, as the manager led led by example, and started picking up clients and was having really good results and was really, really impressed with it. Um, just with some basic bladder retraining concepts and, and some basic strengthening exercises. And so that motivated me to take my first pelvic floor course. So I took Herman and Wallace, um, PF one. And I think like, this is, you know, I laugh, but I see this circling back a lot in my story that, you know, the universe put the blinders on for me because as I was going to take this course and my only really kind of thought was the urinary incontinence management piece, I didn't really know about everything else. And as, um, you know, as I go to take this course, I got the warnings that this is an invasive course. And I was like, sure. Yeah. I can look at pictures of vaginas on the wall. No problem. I got this until after the first lecture, people started talking about how nervous they were for the lab. And I started looking around and I saw that all the windows were papered and there were tables with sheets and lube and gloves behind me. And then it dawned on me that invasive meant inside of my body. (laughs) Oh, goodness. What a way to discover that. Wow. Yep. Um, but I am so, I am forever thankful that uh, I kind of didn't quite process that information. I think there was a reason because I don't yep. know if I would have signed up for it. I don't, I, yeah. to be honest. Um, I'm always, I've always been a very kind of sports minded, exercise minded, like 
I don't know. It just didn't, I, I don't think it would have resonated for me, but there I was. So I dove in yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it just opened up a whole world for me. I remember it was my 30th birthday, the first day of that course. And I was like, I was like, okay, well, this is a new experience for, <laughs> for turning 30. And, but now it's just, I was very stagnant in my work and I didn't have anything that I felt passionate about. I didn't, you know, sure. I was like helping people, but I just, there was something missing. And then this just connected the dots and I've been just, I don't know, I can't speak enough about it, about how okay. stimulating it is and how amazing and transforming formative the work is. So yep, it opened up my whole world. <laughs> now, how many OTs? So in that first class, how many OTs were there in that group? And was it even being advertised as an option for OTs or did you have to advocate to get yourself in the door? Well, so I definitely did not have to advocate because that's where I had no idea. Like I just went because it was available to OTs and PTs, um, you know, Herman and Wallace had the foresight to include occupational therapists in the in the coursework. And it wasn't until after I took the course that I realized that OTs really weren't doing this work. Um, and I was very confused as to well, why would this be available to me if nobody's doing it? So it took it took many years for me to be able to actually to be able to practice and to be able to get my foot in the door. Mm. So much truth to that. Now. I want to touch on internal assessments because that's something, depending on your province, depending on your state, there are, you know, I've been part of many conversations around how that is or is not within our scope of practice. And some people, often other practitioners outside of the OT profession, have very strong opinions about internal assessment being something that OTs can and should do. Could you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, there's, I actually haven't really gotten any pushback for that specifically. I think more of the pushback that I get, or the sense of pushback, are the sense of, um, you know, being qualified to do this work is more from like the orthopedic standpoint. Mm. Um, but the, you know, the internal, uh, I personally have not really had people um, voice concerns about it, certainly making sure that, you know, within your state that your scope of practice supports it. And mostly what I've found is that as long as you have taken, a, you know, coursework to be able to, to train you and prove that you are, you know, clinically skilled in being able to do this, then, um, then it's, it falls under our scope of practice. Now, there are still some provinces, some states who they very clearly state, no, OTs cannot do internal assessments. So, for example, I know in Ontario, Canada, it is very clear that you cannot do internal assessments. I know that there were some other states where, again, seeing you know, it's exciting to see therapists really step into that advocacy role where they do start to educate the regulatory bodies on why this is within our scope of practice. Do you have any tips for listeners who are passionate about this topic, who do want to go further in pelvic health to include training, to include professional growth and development where they are able to do these internal assessments, where their regulatory body is still really drawing the line in the sand and saying, no, you can't, where they do have to step into that advocacy role. Do you have any tips or suggestions on where they may even start? Yeah, I, I actually would... Um... I actually would like some information on that because I would like to advocate for New York and Massachusetts to be able to dry needle. So kind of different topic, but still, you know, seeking out that state board um, approval and being able to advocate for the, for the field. Um, I would say probably, you know, just thinking in where I'm going to start with that. Um, I would say reaching out to your state board. So instead of like, the national board and AOTA, I would look at, you know, in New York, the New York state OT um, board or, you know, whatever state that you're in, I would go directly there and start figuring out how you can um, provide some, some research and being able to connect the dots of other states that are allowing this um, and, and, you know, showing the different 
coursework and certifications that are, you know, OT specific. You know, we now we have actually OT designed and instructed coursework for this specifically. So mm-hmm. I think, and, and they're, you know, AOT approved and CEU approved um, professional coursework. So I think that those would all be great supportive resources. Mm, so true. And again, we'll, we'll, we're certainly going to dive into that in terms of program development and curriculum that has been designed and facilitated by OTs. You're right. That is helping us to climb this mountain 100%. Um, Laura, I want to swing back to the manual rehab piece because I know that is that is an area that a lot of occupational therapists are perhaps not as confident in. So I know for myself, when I started my journey in pelvic health, it was really, you know, where do I start? Because I was very competent with my hands-on skill set with my handling skills for pediatrics. That was my background. And that was a strength of mine in terms of my my hands-on work. But when I found myself venturing into the world of women's health, prenatal, postnatal health, and I came, you know, my training was in biomechanics. So that was my entry point into pelvic health. So I hadn't been trained in internal assessments, but I was going through Katie Bowman's restorative exercise certification at the time. And at one point I questioned if I needed my personal training certification because where I was really uncomfortable was around facilitating movement, hands-on work with adults. And when I look at my ortho, you know, I did a field work placement in orthopedics, and then I had done a little bit more work. I was going to say as a grown up, um, I suppose, <laughs> not, you know, is as a grown up, but doing more hands on work. How do I say this? You know, stroke rehab, very comfortable, but wellness is where there was still a lack of confidence. So when I had a group of five women in a room where they would be described as healthy and wanting to be, you know, really focusing on wellness and movement and strength building, I felt like a deer in headlights where like, oh my goodness, talk about imposter syndrome. Is this, you know, within my scope? So did you have an interest in manual rehab? You know, how did that journey evolve for you in terms of hands-on facilitation, in terms of the manual rehab piece? Because I know that's still a big gap for a lot of therapists. Yeah, I think I think the first time I discovered I could use my hands therapeutically was with a shoulder course that I took. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I think, you know, at least for me, I didn't really get any sort of like manual skill training in school. So I just didn't even dawn on me to be working, um, working on my clients' bodies in that way. So I took, you know, a shoulder, a manual shoulder course and, you know, just even just a basic trigger point release and, you know, then starting to like actually put my hands on clients in a different way rather than like, you know, stabilizing the shoulder to assess, you know, passive range of motion, like actually working on some of the the muscle tightness and, and being able to balance it that way. Um, so I think that's the first time I had discovered really that I could do, be doing that and started wanting to seek that out more um, to, to just enrich what I was doing with the exercises and the functional um, components with my clients. Um, and then you know, I took uh, Herman Wallace PF1 and realized, well, I mean, there's definitely different types of, you know, hands-on um, work going on there. Um, and then really wanting to be able to start to build that skill of like knowing what I'm feeling, like being able to listen with my hands and being able to um, start to elicit changes um, that way. And, you know, um, I always quote Ramona Horton, the fact that, you know, the manual work isn't necessarily like you're trying to stretch and go deep to be able to elicit a response, but more so feeling and listening and then communicating with the brain to be able to balance out what's going on with the structures. So, um, yeah. And then, you know, once I took that PF1 course, then I just wanted to learn more. I wanted to know, well, what am I looking at when I'm looking at, you know, or when I'm feeling a a hip or a back or um, the abdominal wall, what's, you know, what, 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 what does tight feel like, or what does normal feel like, or um, all those kinds of things. 
And I love that you have, and I, I don't even want to say a pivot. I think for a lot of trailblazers, it's a natural evolution to go into or to venture into the world of education. Is that something that you've always been passionate about or was it a wake up call? Hey, more OTs need to know this. So I have to step into a leadership role. I have to step into an educator role. Or was that something that was always on the horizon for you? You knew regardless of what area of practice that eventually you were being called to teach. Yeah. So I did not see myself in a teaching role. I've always kind of, I think I've always, if I look back, I've always kind of sought out that leadership role, like kind of just, you know, how can I, you know, I, I like this, I, I want to go full forward with it. And then I want to be able to help direct and support. Um, I think I've always kind of had that drive just naturally. But then when I switched into pelvic health, I totally switched gears and went into that, that newbie role you know, I'm going to sit back, I'm going to learn, I'm going to let people mentor me and teach me and absorb everything I can. And then, um, you know, I was just kind of chugging along. And then when I when I relocated from Boston to New York, I started the entrepreneurship role. And so that was kind of, you know, took all my focus is, you know, starting a business, I don't know the first thing about it. <laughs> um, I just know that I wanted to continue this work and continue like, just, you know, working with the clients in some capacity. And, um, and then it basically the whole education piece came about because of COVID. It was just, you know, a knee jerk response to the fact that, you know, you know, we need to be able to have training to be able to do this work, um, at least for the internal work piece, um, specifically. And, you know, it was really, you know, sad to see OTs reaching out saying, you know, all the, you know, Harmon Wallace is the front leader for, for the, the intro courses and they were all being canceled because of COVID. Um, and, you know, I just said, I'll do, I was in the, I was, you know, scrolling through Facebook before I got out of bed and saw the question um, from Dana and it just, I don't know, it just made complete sense for me to, to teach someone who wanted to, to, get moving and move forward with, with this career. And I know thinking back when I first got started, it was really hard. It took me almost eight years before I could even, you know, start shadowing. Um, so, uh, I, I think it just really hit home that I wanted to be able to sort support people in this transition. Um, and then once, once I decided to do it and people wanted wanted to do it with me, wanted to learn from me. Um, when I created the course, it just, it, then it clicked that, oh my God, we don't have OTs doing this. Why don't we? Um, and it just made sense to be, to be supporting in that, in that aspect. Mm. Now I do have to get you to back up because you made reference to the question from Dana. So please enlighten us. What was the question? What was the question? It sounded like it was such a pivotal moment in terms of that light bulb going off for you? Yeah, she just posted um, in Facebook, you know, hey, all the courses are getting canceled. And, you know, how important is it that I that I have this training before I start working? Like, can I get started without this? Or do I need this? And what do I do? Help. <laughs> gotcha. You are an entrepreneur, true, you know, true and true in terms of stepping up to the plate and seeing a gap, recognizing that gap, and then creating a solution, you know, a way to solve that. So in terms of your entrepreneurial journey, it sounds a little bit like you were an accidental entrepreneur in that, hey, I want to keep doing this and there's not a job created for me, so I'm going to create my own job. Is that how you ended up starting a business? Yeah, a little bit. So, you know, I got started in the pelvic health field out in Boston at Marathon Physical Therapy. So I was, you know, a lost OT in the PT world, <laughs> but I was, you know, I was very well supported. You know, the, the physical therapists that mentored me and, and hired me were, were just amazing. And um, I was able to build my, my skills that way. Um, however, I quickly burned out there because just with the way insurance reimburses, you know, pelvic health, we were, we were put down to 30 minute treats. Um, so not only was that very stressful to be able to try to have a fulfilling, you know, 
session with someone and be able to give them something that's going to make changes. Um, but it, it, I ended up seeing so many more people in a day and then having so many more notes and documentation to do at the very end of my day at home. So it did, it, as I loved the work, that model was not sustainable for me, for me to enjoy it and to be able to do it the way I wanted to do it. So when I moved out to New York, that's when it, it was just, first of all, in my mind, easier to do it than to try to explain to a whole new area that OTs can do this. <laughs> and, um, and or even just to be able to advocate for pelvic health out in this area as well. Um, so it just made sense to start doing it organically. I didn't, I didn't put pressure. I kept per diem jobs in home care and the SNF world. And, you know, it was just kind of going to let it develop as I made connections and, and started, you know, a lot of my education piece basically started from just trying to do client and community awareness. Um, and then, then it just kind of was an easy transition to, to bring it over to OTs to be able to get this work out to more people. Great stuff. So with your business, what do you, so who would be your ideal client with your business? So let's leave out the educational piece for OTs. We're, we're going to get into that. But in terms of the client work, who, how would you describe your ideal client? Oh, great question, because you um, have me always thinking about that. And, um, and I struggle really hard with this question and especially with, you know, a lot of business, um, programs that I've been, you know, trying to tune into is finding that to like niche down and to find that ideal, um, avatar. I would have to, so I've thought a lot about it. I still don't have a great answer. Um, but I would have to say pain patients because, it really gets my wheels turning. Mm. Um, and when I say pain patients, I think that helps me incorporate the fact that I love treating all of it. I love treating women. I love treating men. I love treating all gender diversities. I love treating pregnancy and postnatal. I love treating the menopause hormonal stage. So I love all that's, that's what excites me is the fact that there are so many, um, enriching areas. Um, so I think that if I if I answer with a pain client, um, it challenges me and stimulates me because there are so many different components to be pulling into the picture. But it also can be all those different people. Yes. Right. Yeah. There's such value for occupational therapists to be working with clients who are experiencing chronic pain. You know, in yeah, terms absolutely. of the biopsychosocial model and in terms of, oh, it's it makes my heart sing when I hear more and more OTs venturing down that path because there is such a need. There's so much to chronic pain that goes well beyond the physical experience. So great answer. Great answer. Okay. Uh, Laura, in t so still focusing on your business, what have been some of the, when did you start this business? Let me back up. So remind me again, what year did you start your business? So this is my second year. So what okay. are you, 21? So 2019. Okay. So you were not very long into business when the pandemic hit. No, I was circling around to one year and I was going to, because when I started the business, I did not incorporate. I was just, I got malpractice insurance under my license and was just going to kind of see how it went. Um, and I was slowly building and I'd gotten to a point where I felt um, like that justified incorporating and then COVID hit. So I still have yet to do that, but that's on, <laughs> that's on the board for this uh, winter spring. Okay. With your business before COVID, were you doing primarily home visits or did you have a space? So I, I started out offering home visits and I also had rented space, um, out of a yoga studio and then slowly transitioned, you know, even though I was offering the home visits, people really in my area just weren't gravitating towards it. Um, unless they, you know, physically were not able to make it out. Um, people seem to want to go somewhere from, from my experience. So I rent, I ended up renting space from two different locations because I'm right on that mass border. So I had one location, um, in, 
in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and then one location in New York. Um, and so when COVID hit, I basically just stopped renting space from those locations. And I've been treating out of my, my home space since. So I have a, a really good um, size like clinic space, like a good room that has access to the outdoor, like it has a door access that people can come and go without having to go into my home. Um, and it's working out amazing, especially with, you know, how, how schedules are so different. And now, I mean, I've got the kids home um, for homeschooling and their, their schedules change so much. So it's really been, been nice to be able to be so flexible for my clients and not have to say, well, I'm only available Tuesdays and Thursdays between these hours. You know, it, working from home kind of opens up that flexibility of, you know, sure, I can treat someone at eight in the morning and then I can treat someone, I'll have nobody and I can treat someone at three in the afternoon and that's totally fine because I don't have to worry about having to hang out for a handful of hours midday waiting for my second client. Mm, that's great stuff. So it yeah. sounds like there have been, you know, there's been some bonuses. There have been you know, I'm the eternal optimist, but there have been some good things that have come out of the pandemic in terms of your business. It's really opened your eyes to doing things differently and discovering that, hey, some ways that you've had to pivot are actually working for you and working for your lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to talk about it as um, a positive thing for me because it is such a, you know, just a hardship for a lot of people, but yes. I have been able to really kind of come into my own during this time and be able to, um, I just prioritize and really, um, and, and learn, you know, just learn so much like business wise, but, you know, be able to spend time. Cause that's what I want to do. I want to be able to, um, to get out of some of the business pieces and get back to like, taking courses because there's so much to learn and so much I got to, you know, I've got a reading list forever long. So <laughs> join the club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Laura, let's fast forward to when this pandemic is over. What are some pieces to your business that you would like to carry forward? So some things that you've discovered, Hey, this is a different way of doing things, but when the pandemic clears, when, when we can go back to, well, Will we ever go back to how things were? I don't think so. Uh, but what are some pieces that you want to carry forward once the pandemic is over in terms of how you've been doing things, how you've been growing your business during a pandemic, but something that's working for you where once this, you know, once things return to normalcy and whatever that may be, where you want to continue incorporating into your business? I think probably location is, is the number one that comes to mind right away. Um, you know, I, I feel like, I felt like I had to be in more of a public location and I needed a location where people would see me more. Um, and I mean, in thinking, you know, especially with this kind of work, people actually don't want to be, don't want to be seen pulling up to the pelvic health rehab place <laughs> and walking in. Um, so, and, and I didn't, you know, I didn't really find that I was getting, many referrals from that, that, that thinking, um, and that, um, that location standpoint. Um, so, and I think, you know, just being able to tap into the, the community referral sources and the wellness professionals in the area and get the word out that way, um, has really been able to sustain and then be able to, to keep me in a more private setting that people like, um, and it just makes it more, more fluid for, for my day to day. Mm. Okay. I'm excited to see what, you know, I'm excited for us to have another podcast interview in a year and to see where things are now, because I really have in just from social media, a scene in terms of confidence in the way you've been answering questions in the way that your, your business is growing, you know, you're on a really cool trajectory and, I'll never forget 
hearing a business coach tell me, well, telling a large group of us that the trailblazers don't usually succeed in business. The trailblazers usually fail in business. And then the people behind them are the ones who succeed because they learn the mistakes of the trailblazers Mm. and how irked I was, (laughs) 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 like my back up against the wall. And I thought, huh. But at that point I had failed multiple times and I was learning from my own failures because I'm very stubborn. So I also had hope because I had already fallen on my face so many times with my business that I thought, no, I, I've got this, you know, I've learned the hard way. And, but that's what I'm hearing from you as well. You know, this hasn't been easy. This has been an uphill journey, but you are resilient. You are determined. And really it sounds like there is a vision that's guiding you and you're being creative and how you're solving these problems. So well done. Thank you. Um, Laura, one more question about your business, because I know our listeners, um, this is a question that many of them will have. And then I want to switch gears to the educational component. When you're working with your clients, do you, are you doing more one-off sessions? Do you do packages? Do you see them for a certain length of time? So in terms of how, what that relationship is like with your clients, can you speak to that for a moment? Sure. Yeah. Most of my, um, my clients are one-on-one. Um, I haven't really figured out. I would love to be able to have more of a group support system. I haven't haven't pieced that together, but yeah, you know, kind of traditional one-on-one, whether it's in person or telehealth. And I don't have any packages. Um, I have mentor packages, but for clients, I just kind of treat with you know the individual sessions, and then you know have that have that kind of you know honest conversation after that initial assessment on kind of what their their duration would look like um, because it is so so patient specific okay good stuff so how did you come up with the idea so I'm going to switch gears in terms of I want to talk about your your course and where you're going with professional continuing education how did you decide on Let's start with program development in terms of this is the topic that I'm going to speak on. This is the length of the course. It's going to be online versus in person. Was that really clear from the beginning or did you have to muddle through a little bit and figure that out? When I designed it, basically, I one, the, the reason that I came up with it, it was because of that immediate response to Dana's Facebook post. And so I basically got on a call with Dana and Megan. Um, I think it was just the three of us at first. Um, And basically I was asking for feedback from the people who are interested in taking the course. What do you want? And, and how can we, how can we um, make this, you know, be what, what you're seeking. Um, And, and the main thing was that hands-on internal piece, because that's, you know, that's what you need to, to be able to present and, and show that you're, you're efficient, proficient, and, and skilled and to be able to do that work. Um, and so we just took it from there. And then, you know, as I was putting it together, I just kept circling back to what, what did I want more of? What did I feel inadequate in? Um, so like, I know, like, after I took PF1, I was like, okay, I kind of learned how to do this little assessment. Uh, but then what? <laughs> so, you know, and then like, even breaking down, like once I actually started treating people, you know, okay, I know this assessment, but like, oh, like, like, actually, like, how, how do I go about it? How do I talk to this person? How do I set them up? Like, um, where do I put the sheets? Like all those little things. Like I just wanted to really break down and make people like go through the paces and, and explore because there's lots of different ways. There's no one set way. So to be able to explore different ways to have that dialogue and have that set up and to be able to, um, obtain the information and then process it. And then, you know, day two, so it's a two day course. And I, and I decided two days because one, I was really diving into the manual piece. Um, So I, you know, I, I wanted to keep it easier for people to be able to attend for two days. Um, But also, you know, they can get more diagnostic breakdown from from other courses. There's a ton of them out there. So I was really kind of drilling down into that lab work and that hands on piece. Um, And then, um, and so it's actually not an online course, it's it is an in person and a um, uh, like a virtual live course. So, um, you know, I decided on that because it just, that's, I 
feel like to learn those types of skills, you really need that, that live interaction to be able to guide and have questions and um, to be able to process that feedback. Okay. So let's break this down a little more so that people really understand your course. So it's interactive. So when you sign up for the course, so it's two days, correct? Yes. Saturday, Sunday. All right. So if someone were to sign up, they don't necessarily have to be there in person, but it is live. So they have to commit to the two days. They can't sign up and get access to replays. So I understand that. So when you sign up, but someone can sign up and complete the course when they're not there face to face. So how are you facilitating that? Which I love. I love that you're being innovative with this. How, what is that learning experience like? So let's say somebody in British Columbia, Canada were to sign up for your course. They have to adjust for the time difference and wake up a little bit Oh, no, they wouldn't have to wake up earlier. Um, They could sleep in, uh, but they would have to go a little (laughs) bit later doing the time change in my head. So do they, do you recommend they have, like, how does that work for somebody who is joining virtually? Yep. So you need to have a model or another participant to take the course. So, you know, as like with pelvic health work, you know, like the, the training courses, we are our own lab partners. We, we practice on each other. So you need to have someone to be able to, to be able to be willing to commit to two, two days to be a model, um, which isn't, isn't very ideal for the model. Um, I do give ideas on my, my course page to be able to be creative and think about maybe you can have a couple people sign up and rotate. So not one person has to be a model for two whole days. Um, but ideally you would, you would be able to, to have another participant because I think there's so much to be said for receiving the work as well, to be able to process what's happening and to be able to know like the experience from your client's perspective. Um, so I really work hard and I need to find a more automated way, but I really work hard because it's really important um, to be able to match people up. So yeah you know, finding satellite host locations mm-hmm. that people can go to has been one, one way. And then just, just matching people up. You know, I've been, I've been looking at my map <laughs> and trying to figure out like, Oh, how far of a drive would it be for this person? And just keeping spreadsheets of locations and people's information and just trying to, you know, it's like winning the lottery when I find people and that's <laughs> <love. It's> great. <laughs> because facilitating a course isn't hard enough to incorporate <laughs> to incorporate a matchmaking service as well. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. You um, you get a gold star in terms of program design and development. Um, do you have a capacity? So because it is, you know, again, this is a really unique. If this is a unique approach, and we're in unique times, aren't we? Do you have, is it a limited number of people or because you have different satellite locations? I would imagine if it's face-to-face, you have a limited number that you could have in the room or maybe, okay. And then for your satellite locations, do you have a limited capacity for those participants? Yeah. So, so for my in-person, um, and I actually didn't do in-person for the winter session just because like my basement is like a finished, like a full kitchen and bathroom basement. And basically I just kick out the family and turn the entire basement over to the participants in the course. Um, so I've, I feel for, you know, COVID precautions that I think I did up to eight last time I did six the first time just to be sure. And then we did eight. And I think that would be the max capacity for people being able to keep their six feet distance. Um, if, um, if I were to get, get to a point where there was a lot more interest for the in-person and COVID restrictions lift, um, I would certainly look into, you know, renting a space for sure. Um, but for right now, the, and, and, and I, I like, I really enjoy the, the small intimate kind of feeling around that as well. So I wouldn't go too big. Um, and then for the satellite locations, do you, you know, I have a conversation with 
the host and figure out what their space allows for for COVID precautions and what they feel comfortable being able to host. So um, I would say probably up to eight or ten would be the max at each place. But um, you know, if their space is a little bit smaller, you know, we we, we um, adjust for accordingly. Okay, and let's let the listeners know that this is an AOTA approved provider, or this is, you can get CEUs now for this. So well done, because I know for a lot of people, that's something that they're looking for. Um, Was that a challenge to become an AOTA approved CE or an AOTA approved CEU provider? Um, So it's funny. So, okay. Imagine I answer this, this Facebook post and people say, yes, I would like to, to, I would like that training. Um, So from then to the course, it was five weeks later that I had the course. And in that time, my initial thought was, of course, I'm going to get this AOTA approved. So I I started the AOTA approval process before I even started putting together the course. Um, So I got approved, then I got the course approved, and then I did like finish developing the course. Um, and from front front to to finish was five weeks. So wow. I, yeah, it was um, it was intensive, but it was so worth it because, you know, these people were looking to me to to be that launching pad, and that's just such a such a um, important role to be able to provide the information and support their, their career path in this. So it was a no brainer to, you know, to go and get the CEUs for them. And it basically that's my appreciation to them for trusting me with their, with their education. Mm, great stuff. When people complete this course, do you have intentions and I suppose I should have clarified this with you before the recording. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is there a next step? Like how far ahead into the future are you looking? Are you sticking with this for a while or is there already a next step uh, in terms of program development that you're working on? Yeah. So um, I think in my mind, I'm going to get really good at this because every time I have the court, well, every time, this is going to be my third time. Um, but I make changes and I'm, I'm learning kind of what's working. Like the first course I had biofeedback in Easton and I rented the equipment and I did all that. And then I decided that that, that wasn't the best use of my time, that there were some other things that, um, that the students felt would be more, more beneficial. So then I kind of, you know, tweaked it the last time and I'm going to, I'm going to keep tweaking it until I really feel like this, this is it. And then, you know, my next, my immediate next project is to be able to make an online offering. So I have, you know, a lot of recorded content. I have to um, put it into action and to kind of start uploading and developing that because there are a lot of OTs out there that have voiced that they really want to take the, the course and they want, you know, they want to move forward in this, this journey of pelvic health, but one, either they, they can't attend on Saturdays because they're religion or um, the time zone, or they can't find a partner. Um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. And, um, you know, I, as much as I, I believe strongly in the live component of it, I also believe that I can get a lot of this information out to people and then they can start to practice and develop it on their own as well. So I want to be able to provide something that's online and more self-paced um, with probably another like um, another component of of like live support as well. So great, Laura. I'm so excited. In addition to your coursework, do you provide one-on-one mentoring? I do. And I love it. I, again, it wasn't something that I had really thought of until I started doing the course, but then, you know, people started asking and I said, Oh, of course I do. (laughs) Why wouldn't I? And it's, I got to tell you, those sessions are like so fun for me, whether we're talking about the business. And again, I'm by no means a business leader, um, but I can certainly tell you what I did and what worked and what didn't and help, you know, brainstorm some ideas for you. But, um, but yeah, you know, going through, you know, um, 
clients, clients cases um, going through like, okay, hey, uh, you talked about how to engage the core for this, but can we go through it? So it's like spot checking techniques and exercises and things. It's just, it's so much fun. And I record um, the sessions. So then, then the person can have that. So it's like a little, you know, one-on-one training session. Mm, fabulous. Yeah. Laura, what are, now I am putting you on the spot. I didn't prep you for this, but it sounds like you are a student for life. So what are a couple of books? So books that come top of mind, um, if someone's interested in pelvic health, if they're interested in going, and they can be pelvic health related or not, but what are some of your top book recommendations for people who are just looking to start reading, to start consuming some content before they take the next step? Oh, wow. That is so funny because I just saw someone ask that same question. Um, I think it was probably in my onboarding group. Um, They're asking about what models would be good to have. And they're asking about what good book resources. And, you know, for intro stuff, I don't have a great answer because I think I just use like, and I, a lot, I referred a lot back to my manuals. Um, so I use that a ton, um, which is another piece why I, I was really wanted to make my manual and like my, like just the like anatomy photos and stuff be like a, a great resource to be able to go back to over and over. Um, but I mean, so for books and I, I think getting into pelvic health, I can't answer that question, but, um, the, the one book that I love that I've been like advocating the past few months is called breath by James Nestor. And it's really helped me connect. Like, why are we talking about breathing? Like we know that breath has such a strong impact on all, like it all circles back to breath. And, um, and, and it really kind of helps kind of solidify that on how it affects so many different systems. And I always recommend people to get the audiobook because you can, they, at the end, they give you like guided exercises and they, the person talks you through it. And it's just, I fell asleep probably like 10 times before I finished all the exercises because it really is, you know, like the certain ones are just so, um, you know, regulating and can really help. Like if you're having sleep problems, if you're having anxiety, um, they have ones for, um, being able to focus and have energy. So, um, that's, that's the latest book just to be, you know, off the top of my head that I could recommend. Um, and then like, there's other books that I'd like to circle back to like wild feminine by mm-hmm. Tammy Kent. Um, because sometimes I get so anatomy driven and in my head and I, it's really nice to kind of also balance your thought process and like the message that you're sending with energetic you know, healing and energetic concepts of the pelvic bowl. Um, and, and to be able to offer that to your clients and you can kind of get a feel for who who that would resonate for or who that would turn off. So, but, you know, having, having different kind of perspectives going into pelvic health is really helpful. Hmm. Have you, do you have the book? So one that came to mind and I realized I asked you this question, it wasn't my response, um, but below your belt. Do you know that one? Uh, I have heard of it. I have not read it. I've heard great things about it, though. So for those of you who are just getting started, Below Your Belt, How to Be Queen of Your Pelvic Region, it is geared towards kids. And when I picked up that book, um, so I forget what the age, you know, uh, older I would say older kiddos. Uh, So I believe 10 to 15, 11 to 15, around that age. And when I picked up that book and started reading it, I was learning so much in terms of my own knowledge and understanding. And if I would have picked up that book, even in my 20s, it would have been life-changing. They just were using proper terminology and teaching about your pelvic floor. And again, it was really eye-opening. And (laughs) I love that the book that was recommended for 12 to 14-year-olds, I'm like, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But for those of us who are just getting started or for, you know, people who are wanting to learn more, you know, maybe there are listeners out there who you've stuck with us, you've listened to the whole interview and you're very uncomfortable. 
because of your upbringing, because of your religious background, because of, you know, the, maybe this is stuff that you did not talk about and you're already, you know, feeling, wow, I'm, I'm learning lots, but not a chance am I ever doing this professionally. You know, this is a good book for you. Right. For people who, because guess what, people, whether you're, it doesn't matter what gender you are, I have a secret for you. You have a pelvic floor, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's part of our body and we should all be learning a little bit more in terms of body awareness and understanding the proper anatomical terms. There's a difference between your vagina and your vulva. You know, this is something that yep. I see people using just incorrect language. And so for those of you who, and maybe it is a good fit for those of you who are looking to venture more um, professionally, but even if you're looking for more info personally, um, I thought it was a really well, it was really well done and it's on my bookshelf. It's, it's one that I've referred a few people to. So I'm going to add that to the list. Uh, I will add that to my list <laughs> as well. Um, and I, I'm glad that you brought that point up as far as you know, being able to get this information out to to younger people, I would love my next like chapter, I think is going to be able to get this information out to like high school female athletes, because I, I so relate, you know, I yes. was causing myself some prolapse and some urgency and some, um, some stress incontinence as, as an athlete. And, you know, not only was I doing myself a disservice, but I actually probably could have been much stronger and more efficient if I knew how my body was working. Um, I feel, you know, I'm 43 now and I actually feel stronger and have more endurance than because I kind of have a better, you know, body awareness, um, than I did in my, you know, teens, twenties, even early thirties. Yes. Uh, Laura, as we start to wrap this up, I have to ask, do you think authoring a book is in your future? Ooh, I'm not a bit, I'm not great with words. <laughs> so, um, e even like the fact that people say that I'm a great teacher, it still is hard for me to hear that. Um, but I'm starting to feel that definitely. Um, just the feedback that I get, just even doing like just kind of the Instagram lives that I do. And um, people, the, the consistent feedback is that I'm able to explain things on a level that they can digest. So uh, I believe it now. <laughs> All right. But um, as far as like words and language, I, I'm just not eloquent. So I don't think I'm going to be writing um, unless I had a writer. But, um, you know, I think I think maybe just trying to like continue down this path and, and spread the word, you know, this way in different, you know, workshops and, and videos um, is, is really fun and inspiring to me. So awesome. And for the ghostwriters out there that are listening to this, you may have yeah. a potential client. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, how can people find you and where do you hang out on social media? Okay. So I have essential pelvic health is my business. And so I have a Facebook page that you can look at. And I try to put up like anything that I do, like interview wise or um, live recording wise, I try to put up the, the replays there. So you can always go there um, and communicate with me there. Um, I have a website, essentialpelvichealth.com. And I try to use that as um, an educational resource for for clients and, and therapists as well. So, um, you know, I've got some blogs, I've got some, um, some videos and just, you know, kind of different specialty area explanations, um, I hope are helpful. And then, um, I do have Instagram. I feel very old <laughs> trying to use Instagram, which is why I kind of teamed up with, um, a very, a much more savvy Instagram uh, wellness professional um, to do these Instagram lives and they kind of get the information out there more efficiently, but I'm certainly there. Um, and I'm always looking for, um, you know, looking at Instagram to be able to, to see what everybody else is doing and the wonderful work that people are putting out there. Um, and I love to scroll through and now I can justify it as work to scroll through the, the pelvic health, uh, Facebook groups and, um, 
you know, I just, I love seeing the scenarios and being able to start to troubleshoot like what's going on and what are some things that I can help. And, and, you know, I certainly use it as a resource to be able to help with my clients as well. So good stuff, Laura. All right. So this has been inspiring. This has been eye-opening and this has been educational. So in my books, this has been one of the uh, perfect interviews. I love talking to trailblazers and visionaries who are doing the work. You know, you're not just having big ideas. You are putting your head down and doing the work and helping to pave the way for so many other therapists to be doing this work. And, you know, doing it from your heart, right? Like when we talk about purpose-driven therapists and when we talk about heart-led entrepreneurs, you certainly fit that criteria. I can hear the energy in your voice and I could talk to you about this all day long. So thank you so much for joining me and I can't wait to yeah, to get this out to our listeners and to continue these really important conversations about pelvic health. Awesome, Melissa. Thank you so much. It was super fun. And I think, you know, just the the last closing thought is that, you know, it really is, this comes from a place of just like excitement, enthusiasm. And that's, I didn't have that for the longest time. I was working for a paycheck and was hoping to find it. And once I found it, like the universe has just kind of opened up its pathway for me. When I stopped trying to force it, these things are just kind of organically happening. And that's the the beauty of it. Great stuff. All right. So everyone, I'm going to link everything Laura had mentioned. So the different ways to find her in our show notes. Uh, and Laura, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the OT's Gone Rogue podcast, where we're all about making deeper connections by leaning into the difficult conversations. Make sure you're subscribed if you haven't already, because we've got some more awesome episodes coming your way. Take care, and we'll see you next week.